Yeah, so being really intimately familiar with the problem. In our case, for example, it was, again, 2014, 13, when we decided, look, building emails with the existing kind of Microsoft Word-looking visual, uh, not visual, an editor, you know, that you still see sometimes in applications, it's just, you, you can't, it just it doesn't work. So we need to change this. Let's build a, a visual builder that that works. First, we did an outsourcing to save money, uh, one of the mistakes we all often make, and it sucked. We knew that it sucked because we were that familiar with the problem. Like we were building emails uh, night and day, and we had tons of customers that did. And so we quickly decided that that's probably what we build. Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those who don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Mays. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where baby it's cold outside isn't controversial. I mean, because sometimes it really is. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. Well, this is the time of year, at least here in Texas, where it can be sunny and nice one day and then the next day colder than a brass toilet seat on the shady side of an iceberg. Yeah, I know some of you up north might not think it's really that cold down here, and you're probably right. But to us, it kind of feels that way. But it's only fitting that today is National Cocoa Day, or as some might call it, National Hot Chocolate Day. I mean, there, there is a difference. Cocoa being crushed cacao beans and hot chocolate being made from melted chocolate. But either way, both fantastic, wonderfully delicious. And, you know, there's nothing better to do on a cold winter night than sit out fireside with a mug of hot cocoa. And we actually do that this time of year. We'll build a campfire, sit out, look up at the stars. And, you know, seriously, does life get any better than that? You know, if you haven't done that lately, I encourage you to get out and go do that. You know, change your state of mind and change your world. You know, speaking of world changers, in last week's episode, we talked with Karina Ludwig, CEO of Function Fox. Karina and Function Fox have revolutionized the way creative professionals track time and manage projects. She shared her experience in SaaS, HR, marketing, including an incredibly powerful top 10 list of lessons learned building a SaaS company. It is absolute gold. So if you missed it, grab your pickaxe and cart and go mine that episode because it is fantastic. Well, my guest this week is multi-time SaaS founder Massimo Aragoni. He is CEO of B, a product-led scale-up that's making email and landing page design easy and fast for anyone, even me. It is pretty fantastic, really. B's no-code visual builders are used over 6 million times a month and are embedded in over 1,000 SaaS applications. Maybe yours, and, and if not, you have to ask yourself why. 1,000 SaaS applications. B is growing like crazy, a shot past 10 million AR and still trucking along at 50% year-over-year growth. Massimo is also co-founder of Early Impact and created Product Cart, which was an early e-commerce system that still powers thousands of online stores today. So big welcome to someone who has consistently made powerful, complex tech accessible to all of us, Massimo Aragoni. 
Well, hey, Massimo, welcome to SaaS Fuel. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Well, I'd love to, you to tell listeners a little bit about your backstory and how you came up with the idea and, and where the bees came from. Sure. So <laughs> my background, I, I grew up in Italy, in Milan, and uh, great city, by the way. If you visit Italy, don't skip it. Some people do, but it's a good, great city to hang out in. During my college years, I studied at UCLA for a year, and which was great. I was there in 95 when they won the NCAA championship, basketball championship, and I'm a basketball fan, so that was uh, nice. That was, that was a lot of it's fun. It's a good time to be there. Totally. It was great. It's a great camp. Was, uh, I had a blast. And I also met who then became my wife at UCLA. So that's ultimately why. That's I, even better. Yes. Yeah, that tops a basketball championship. Just a little bit. <laughs> it absolutely did. So that's how I ended up staying in the United States, which was never my plan. But also while I was there, it was really the beginning of the internet at 95. Uh, you know, that also ages me, obviously. But it was really the, the starting point. And I was fascinated with uh, e-commerce. It was the, you know, the beginning of, of Amazon and all that stuff. And so that's like that, then I, how I got into the software industry. E-commerce was my first love. And so in 2001, I started an e-commerce company that we grew for about 10 years. And uh, as part of that, I became also very familiar with email marketing because e-commerce and email, as you all know, right? You get a ton of emails from your favorite e-commerce source. It's how you, they bring you back. So that's how I then transitioned into email when I sold the e-commerce company. And B came out of uh, an internal need, need to develop a better visual builder for the email platform that we were working on at the time called MailUp, but still exists. And it's kind of the, the MailChimp of Italy. And so we developed a, a better visual builder for email for that product. And then decided, well, what if someone else uh, might use this? Because maybe the application that they're using doesn't have a good visual builder. And that's why we just threw it up on the web in 2014 and it kind of took off. And uh, now it's been eight years of building B as a separate product in a separate company. That's great. And that was really revolutionary in 2014. I mean, there just there weren't the visual builders. There are a few more today, but nothing like that back then. Yeah, and it's the... What we found was that there were a lot of applications where people were building digital assets, uh, email specifically, and like you said, they didn't have that uh, good user experience. And so that's why we thought, okay, let's throw it up on the web for free and see if anybody cares. And they did. And so I remember the first weekend, we got lucky. We got written up in uh, Hacker News and Product Hunt. That was the early days of Product Hunt. And we literally had 20,000 visitors first weekend, no marketing. Wow. Event, you know, as always, as you know better than I do, it's always a combination of good product at the right time and luck. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. So, so luck definitely played a role. And, and the product was good. And, and there was a clear product market fit. And so people just started using it. And then from then we evolved into the two products that we have today because really the, the need is twofold. On one side, you have the end user that wants to design things easily and maybe design for an application where they can't, right? So they design and then they export the HTML and use it for email and landing page and some other application. The other need is the application itself. So it could be a CRM, a marketing automation platform, an event management platform that says, actually, I want to create that user experience for my end users but it's a big engineering effort. Is there anything out there that I can just embed? Just like you don't build an SMS that API from scratch, right? You just use uh, uh, Twilio or whatever it is. 
perfect thing is that it's simple make versus buy. And we now have over 600 SaaS applications that have embedded B within their application from startups to very large companies. Uh, so. And that's really unique. I mean, when I first looked at the the product, I mean, great visual builder, email, and I think that's something that is is really still lacking out there. And so what you have is is still pretty special. And then, you know, so it's one of those things you look at and you go, this is pretty cool. But then you look at the plugin, it's like, this is a game changer. And I think it really is for SaaS applications to be able to embed that into their applications and not have to think about, you know, what how do we do the, the rendering and the building and and just making it where it's part of it is brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. And if you take a platform like, again, there's hundreds of them, but let's take Customer.io, right? A great, great customer automation platform. Their core reason to exist is not the visual builder. You know, their core reason to exist is to make it really easy to create workflows and, and do marketing automation effectively. And they've built a great product. So when they find themselves in that kind of scenario, they may very well decide, okay, yes, for, for that kind of user experience, which I want for my users, let's just go get something out there that works well. And so they've been a customer for a long time. And that's kind of our secret to success. You know, we've been very focused on, on that visual building experience. And we've grown quite a bit just uh, staying true to that. That's great. You created this out of a need that you had internally. And I think that's really interesting. It's out of the pain that you experienced. And how do you think that's different, you know, better, worse, or just different than somebody who's, you know, maybe sitting in, a, you know, an office and uh, you know, a few people come up with an idea of a problem they think they can solve, so they want to go build software and, and put it out there to the world and to, for a problem they think they can solve versus a problem that you actually experience and, and really know well? Yeah, it, I'm a huge believer that that is the true recipe for building good products and then good companies. Uh, in fact, I've I've often given a, a workshop here in Silicon Valley for, for startups, et cetera, on, on the job to be done methodology. I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, Bob Meister, Clay Christensen, Alan Clement, et cetera. And so, first of all, that humble understanding that nobody needs our product. Nobody does. They just have a job That's to be done. That's hard to take. Right? Yes. You're like, <laughs> okay, let's, let's first of all get humble here. People have a job to be done for which our product may be a good fit. Okay, so let's start there. And then to create a good fit, it's really hard, right? How many times we product we call we talk about product market fit and how you get there. And so when you're intimately familiar with the fundamental reason to exist, it just makes it so much easier to reach product market fit almost naturally. Right. So I, I try to explain this by saying when you are royally frustrated with a big enough problem that you're very familiar with, those three things are great ingredients. So first of all, you have to be royally frustrated, not just a little bit, right? You know, it has to be like a, <laughs> a big pain point. And the job to be done theory explains very well that unless there's something that's very wrong, people will not change their habit. 100% right. People will not switch to a new product, right? Right. So first of all, you have to be royally frustrated. You or someone else that you talk to, but if it's you, even better. Because of the third element. The second element is you have to be frustrated about something that somebody else cares about. Okay. So if you're really royally frustrated, you know, about making a good pizza at home, but there's not enough people that want to do it, that might not be a, you know, a big enough market. That part 
that in fact is a big market. In fact, uh, during COVID, you know, tons of uh, pizza ovens <laughs> right. that took up. But anyway, so it has to be a big enough market. And then the third thing, you have to be intimately familiar with it. And when you're not, if it's you, it's so much easier because you're naturally intimately familiar with the problem. And if it's not, it's a lot harder because you need to interview a ton of people that are and get the real thing out of them. So for example, you had Sarah Wells on your show. Yes. Ago, and, and it was so clear. I love that episode because it was such a, a great example. Anybody listening to this, if you want to you know, get a real feel of what that royally frustrated about a big problem that you're intimately familiar with, perfect example of that. Sarah was so familiar right, about that problem of, of hiring people in the ER uh, quickly when you're understaffed and we worked there for a number of years. And my experience, uh, that leads to good products, good companies. And, and when I do this workshop, I like to mention what happens when you don't, when you don't do that, right? And, and some of the examples that I give are incredible companies that do incredible things, but when they fail on that, they create products that nobody uses. One of my favorite examples is the, the Amazon Fire Phone. I don't know if you remember it. They no, it I don't. Summer 2014 with a huge launch, retired it a year later. And we're talking about Amazon, right? all the money in the world, uh, great UX research, uh, obviously incredible access to the retail channel. And they put out a phone that nobody needed and it failed miserably. This is just one example, but it's one of those examples where what were they royally frustrated with, with the existing phone? Probably nothing, nothing. Probably nothing. Right. To be really honest, that's why you have to. It's, they really just wanted to get in the game. Absolutely. And that that's a mistake that we all make. Like you get into the game just because the game looks good. That's normally a recipe for disaster. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not an ingredient. It's one of the ingredients that needs to be there. The, the game has to be a good game, right? Where there's enough players, there's enough of an audience, uh, but it's not enough for you to be successful in that game, even if you're Amazon. And so tell me a little bit more about the third element. Yeah, so being really intimately familiar with the problem. In our case, for example, it was, again, 2014, 13, when we decided, look, building emails with the existing kind of Microsoft Word-looking visual, and not visual, an editor, you know, that you still see sometimes in applications. It's just, you, you can't, it just it doesn't work. So we need to change this. Let's build a, a visual builder that, that works. First, we did it in outsourcing to save money, uh, one of the mistakes we all often make, and it sucked. We knew that it sucked because we were that familiar with the problem. Like we were building emails uh, night and day, and we had tons of customers that did. And so we quickly decided, okay, that product that we built is not going to work out. And we really threw it out with the investment that we made and started from scratch again. So that's the kind of thing that if you're not intimately familiar with the problem that you're trying to fix, maybe we would have gone with, okay, this, I mean, it looks like a visual builder. You can drag and drop, right? It's probably going to be good enough. And, and it wasn't. And so it's just when the distance between you and the problem is that short, the time it takes you to figure out whether the solution is good is also that short. And so, you know, quick to fail, as you know, is one of the ingredients to a successful business, right? You fail quick, you restart or pivot and let's go. That's, for example, what we did in, in that case. And we, we redesigned the product from the ground up. And when we launched, it was a much better product. And in fact, immediately resonated. Wow. 
So do you think that that was because the outsourcing company wasn't familiar with the product and they just built what they thought that you asked for? A hundred percent. You're exactly right, which is one of the reasons why I know software. I don't know a lot of other things. But in software, in my experience, outsourcing is really hard, not because they're not good, but because they are not familiar with the problem. And so unless you're really, really good and making them familiar with the problem that you're trying to solve, you run into all kinds of issues, which are, again, are not their fault. It's not the outsourcing company that's not delivering. It's just that it's really hard to provide them all the context, all the information so that you build the right thing. And as you know, when you develop software, you're constantly making micro decisions, right? Whether it's the UI or whatever it is, constantly making those micro decisions where if you're intimately familiar with the problem that you're solving, you're probably gonna make most of them right, or you quickly figure out if you're if you're not. But if you're not, then you don't have enough context. And so in our experience, uh, Unless the project is very well defined and short and and you know and, and narrow scope, outsourcing quite honestly has never worked for us. I think that's true in a lot of cases. Is that that knowledge is just really difficult to pass on, and for somebody to comprehend it without that context. So just you know building something is is easy. I mean it's typing. Lots of people can do that, but it's really having that context and understanding the problem you're going to solve and the way that you somebody wants to go about solving it to alleviate that day-to-day pain, that royal frustration that is really, really difficult to communicate. Yeah, exactly. It's a, you're exactly right. And, and we've tried to embed that concept even in the way we make decisions around the software. There too, we didn't invent uh, the methodology. It's called ShapeUp. It's a methodology that was originally developed by the, the guys at, at Basecamp. And the idea of ShapeUp is that First, you shape the problem. Basically, you spend time writing a pitch on what it is that you want to do. So what is the problem that you're trying to solve? And in broad strokes, how do you think that this problem should be solved? You don't even get into the UI. You don't even, you just write a document. And why writing a document? Because again, it humbles you. Unless you are royally frustrated about that problem, you're not going to sit down and write a, a long pitch for your colleagues because you're like, I got that. Who cares? I don't want to spend time. That's <laughs> not that important <laughs> anymore. <laughs> right. And so in ShapeUp, actually, you have the product team that's spending a lot of time on that weeks, typically six weeks. And then when you're at the end of the six weeks, they present pitches. And then you have people in the organization that bet on the pitch like do we want to bet our time and you're you know on developing this and then it gets passed to the development team that that does a, a six week week sprint to to develop it but so we like to ship up methodology because again it stresses the fact that figuring out what to do understanding the problem you're trying to solve takes a lot of time it takes a lot of time and effort before you write in, in the case of software before you write a line of code Right, or design any element of the UI. I think a lot of people want to jump right to just fixing it and writing some code, but design, I think, should be a lot bigger focus. And then, but even before that, identifying the problem to solve, you know, where do we want to go and getting deep into that, not just at the surface. And I think that's, that's exactly what that methodology helps you do is get down deep to that, the root of the problem. And so what you end up with on the other end is much more robust. It really solves the, the need instead of just kind of guessing at it or, or thinking, here's a quick solution we can do. 
Yeah, hundred percent. I I talked about Amazon earlier, you know, about a, a product that they failed with. Obviously, they've done a lot of things right. And one of the things that I like about their methodology for making decisions is they also start with documents. I don't know if you've heard of this. Like when you pr- present the project at Amazon, you write the press release that you will put out right when the project is done. And again, because it requires that you sit down and you spend time. And writing is is an art that in some you know context we we've, we've kind of lost, but we're kind of going back to it. And working remotely, I think, forces us also to go back to just writing. And in my view, it's very healthy. And I understand why Amazon does it that way. And again, the trip up methodology also is very heavy on that. It just forces you to feel that investment. Okay, do I really want to invest on this? Because writing takes time, it takes effort, you know. So anyway. Is it press release worthy? Exactly. You know, is anybody going to care? And that's probably one of the first things that we need to stop and ask ourselves. Is anybody even going to care about this if I build it? Yes. And then why? What problem does it solve? And if we don't know that, then maybe we shouldn't go forward and build it. Absolutely. Exactly. And another great example of, of that that sometimes I, I mention is the mobile payment. You know, this, uh, it's a fascinating story because mobile payment technology started way back, way back. And uh, it, Apple and Google, et cetera, invested literally hundreds of millions of dollars in marketing and nothing was happening. Like if you look at the adoption of uh, Apple Pay, for example, for years, regardless of the fact that they were investing a, a ton of money into making this product visible, right? Nobody was using it. And why? Because... In the end, uh, if you time the time it takes to get a credit card out, it's almost the same amount of time than you know doing something with your phone. Literally, it's it. so faster checkout, which was the pitch, was not the reason to adopt. And then what happened? Well, of course, COVID happened, and so all of a sudden, touchless checkout becomes something that we all want to do. Absolutely, right. I don't. <laughs> and so, and you see in the charts, uh, incredible adoption on mobile payments uh, during the pandemic. Because again, the, for the fundamental reason for that to exist was not a faster checkout or the fact that you leave your wallet at home. That's not true. You still you, you need your wallet for all kinds right. of things. Right? <laughs> so that wasn't it. That wasn't it. It was actually safety. A lot of people ultimately switched to mobile payments, not really for convenience. Once you try it, you also find that it is convenient, right? And you may continue to use it. But the thing that really changed that adoption cycle was the safety aspect. So again, digging into the problem and what you're trying to solve, it's just fascinating. It's one of those things that, you know, as you can see, I'm passionate about it. I love it. And I like that you say fail fast. I mean, that's absolutely correct. How do you know when to kill a project versus when to, to wait it out? I mean, yeah, Amazon, your example, killed the Fire Phone a year in. Apple Pay took a long time to develop. How do you know when to stick with something long term versus kill it off? So I don't pretend to have the you know the perfect answer, but the way I approach oh, I don't either. it is <laughs> it's a tough one. It's a tough one. The way I approach it is let's say that you do you are in contact with people that are royally frustrated about that problem that you're solving, right? Including yourself. And you create something that actually gets it done. It gets the job done. And yet there's no adoption or not enough. In that case, I wouldn't 
necessarily kill the project because it means that if these early adopters are giving you very strong positive feedback, you could be in that phase of the cycle where you have the early adopters, right? And it takes a while to go from that to the ramp up and then mass adoption, as you know. So it could be that that amount of time, it just might be longer. Maybe you're way ahead of the curve. You know, maybe your your product is just uh, ahead of where the marketplace is. So I would use that as an indicator. If those early adopters are very happy, are advocates, they talk to other people about it, and yet you don't see the adoption, then I would stick with it. You know, it, it probably is a timing issue. And, you know, and, and so that's, that's something that we do. That's really helpful. And it's not about having the exact right answer, but just it's really helpful, I think, just to understand the thought process. You know, how do we evaluate? How do we think about those types of problems? Because it is something to wrestle with. And looking back, I think that's true with mobile payments. It was definitely very early. And now we're seeing a lot more adoption with it where it was around five years ago, but nobody cared. And now, you know, whether it's pandemic or, you know, whatever the, the driver was, you know, safety being a big driver, you know, we see a lot more adoption around mobile payments. And I think we'll see that continue on and probably even more and more. Yes, exactly. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Massimo about the difference between freemium and a free trial and the difference it's made in his business and yours as well. Right after this. Well, today's episode is sponsored by Champion Leadership Group. Get free growth tools and map out a growth plan to scale your SaaS beyond 10 million. Travel with fellow SaaS entrepreneurs on your growth journey using a proven methodology that is mentor-guided, results-focused, and peer-supported. Celebrate wins and quickly rebound from setbacks to achieve profitable growth, impact, and freedom. Unleash your SaaS growth at championleadership.com. Welcome back to SaaS Fuel. My guest today, Massimo Aragoni, CEO of B. And Massimo, tell me a little bit about how you took a, a detour from the traditional method of free trial, which everybody seems to do, to going freemium. So our product, uh, B Pro, which is an email design, email landing page design suite, was launched in 2016. And... Uh, we started with a free trial offering. And the reason for the product to exist, uh, again, is that you may have applications where designing an email or landing page is not as friendly. And so you do it in B Pro and then you export. So there's some connectors like you push to HubSpot or many other applications. It's a broad market and a lot of people that may have a need for this. So we're dealing with large numbers. So we were doing around 10,000 free trials a month of B Pro. That's pretty good. Yeah, no, things are over 10,000 active uh, paying customers. But one thing that was bothering us was uh, the churn. So pretty high churn, over 5%. And again, it's a B2B application that's almost B2C where you're really selling to the end user that's designing things. But still, that's a high churn. When you have 10,000 paying customers, that's 500 people that are paying you that go away every month and you're just like hurting, right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be a painful number to see. It's a painful number to see. And yet, NPS was in the mid-50s, 54, 55. That's really good. Really high, right? So we're like, okay, this doesn't make any sense. It's not like these people are saying, sorry, you stuck, and therefore I'm not going to use you anymore. Um, They were saying something else. So first of all, we did a deep analysis of churn reasons. 
And we found that when we categorized those churn reasons, around 65% of people were saying, look, I got the job done. I don't need a subscription. Don't sell me a subscription. I needed to design an email for back to school promotions or you know Black Friday or the new year announcement. I got it done. Maybe I'll see you again, but now I don't need it. And so they were churning. And so analyzing that and, and other things, we came to the conclusion that it was one of those cases where they really needed a free plan. They needed a free, a free sub- subscription with some limitations. And so we decided to just fully embrace what was already a product-led growth approach, but it was missing that component of just a completely free plan. And obviously there was some uh, internal discussions and, and, and fear that this would cannibalize a lot of the, the, right. the revenue. And, uh, but what we didn't anticipate that worked out really well for us was that the fact that the free subscription made the, the, the funnel, removed even more friction in the funnel. So there's clear, I'm not an expert in product psychology, but clearly there is a big difference between saying, hey, just come in, it's free, and come in and it's a free trial. Where if you say free trial, you immediately, you know, have that cognitive drain where you go, okay, how long is the free trial? Are you going to charge me automatically when it ends, et cetera, et cetera? What if it's not enough time to tell my colleagues about it? Like there's all these questions that if it's a free plan, they're out the window. They, they're not there. And so, so in our case, uh, which we were not expecting, um, signups went up 60%. So from 10,000 to over 15,000 wow. signups a month without really doing much in terms of other changes to, to the UI at the top of the funnel. Just a, a few things here and there, but not, nothing major. But just free trial sign up versus sign up free. And just the, the language and the perception from the, the, the user that they're going into something that's just free. So it worked out really well. Now, obviously, we're, we're converting less because now you have a, a bunch of happy campers on the free plan. So as part of that, we're also learning to become an enterprise freemium company. And I don't pretend to be an expert on that. You know, we're really kind of learning as we go. And there's many, there's many great examples of that uh, from Calendly to many, many other applications that really tons of free users. And then the ones that pay are much higher paying, right? In our space, Canva is a fantastic example of that. Uh, the last time I, I looked at their data is incredible. They, they convert 0.7% of users. So 99.3% of Canva users are free, which like in a normal business situation, you go, what? Like, how can you say business? <laughs> in their case, they do over a billion dollars in ARR on less than 1% of the users, which is, you know, incredible. Not easy to do. We're certainly not experts, but that's kind of where we're going and we're seeing some traction there. That's really smart. And just for context, explain to me what the difference is between freemium and free trial. Sure. So free trial, you just... Uh, Try a product. There may not be any limitations in terms of features. And then at some point, the trial ends. And so you need to make a decision. Do I want to continue using it and pay for it? Or I stop and I, and I don't have any other options. A freemium uh, approach basically says, 
come in, use it. Typically, there are some limitations, but you can use it as long as you want. And uh, you can certainly combine the two. In fact, in our model, the two are combined in that you can start with a free plan and then you can do a trial of you know, some other features or some other plans. Again, we're not reinventing the wheel here. HubSpot is the perfect example of that. Right? When they switched to a freemium model with their CRM, uh, you would go into the CRM, start using it for free, and then you have many points in the application where you could try the premium features and then upgrade if you decided that that was the, the way to go. So not pretending, obviously, to, to say something new, but it's a well-proven strategy if you have that initial need that you can satisfy with a free limited solution and then convert later. And it's not, it's, like you said, it's not a matter of good or bad, right? There are some, some situations where it makes no sense. Like if I'm selling a large HR platform, there's no freemium, like freemium what? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's, so it's very, so the, the more difficult, the more hard to implement the application is, Typically, the more a freemium model doesn't doesn't make any sense. But in a case where you have a very specific need that you're satisfying and you can satisfy enough of that need with a piece of your product, then freemium could be a great strategy to get people in the door, have them familiarize with who you are, how your product works, what problems you solve, and then you're monetizing later. I think that makes a lot of sense. Is that like at free trials a lot? And even if it's something that I want, you know, I think, okay, am I going to actually use it right now? And I've got 14 days to figure this out. And I'm, I know I'm going to forget in 14 days anyway, I'm going to get charged. But, you know, looking at that, okay, I've got to find a 14-day window where I can actually do this. So I'll put it off and do it later versus freemium where I'll sign up and I'll play with it now. But I like that because you become the default solution for that need. And so you're solving the pain. And, and why would they go anywhere else? They've got an account and they can at least start to do what they want to do. And we'll see how far that, you know, how limited it is in features, but they can probably get a, a long way or a long way toward their goal with that model. So you become that default solution. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I also like the fact that it really is a two-way street, right? You're asking somebody to, to come in. What are you giving them in return? The beautiful thing about freemium is that you're giving them in return a free product. You're saying, look, if that's, if that's all you need, we're good. You're using my product. You're giving me feedback, et cetera. And in return, I'm giving you a free experience. Whereas in the free trial, uh, you're immediately saying, look, you got to make a decision here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and again, there are cases where you have to go that route for, for a number of reasons. Sure, sure. Yeah. But if you can avoid it and if you can establish that relationship where you have this initial uh, give and take, you probably can appeal to a lot of people that are okay with that trade off. And then they're even more okay later deciding, you know what? You're right. I need more of this. And I'm certainly willing to pay. You know, how many times maybe you've had that situation where you eventually pay for something, you eventually upgrade, and you feel like, yeah, that's fair. I use this uh, frequently and I need more and I'm happy to pay. Yeah, that's really, really nice. I mean, you don't have to worry about the trial. Reducing that friction on the front end is huge, but then building that know, like, and trust. And at that point where you've built that trust and now it's time to, to move forward and you built a relationship and now it's time to take it to the next level. Instead of, you got 14 days, are we getting married or are we not? 100%. <laughs> so that's really good. 
So looking back on what you've built with B and, and prior companies, what would you go back and tell yourself? What advice would you give yourself if you could go back and, and tell yourself something in the early days? One of the things is it, it just takes longer. It normally always takes longer than you think to get to having a good product for the right market, right? So just know that it does and therefore prepare yourself. And that obviously means financially, even just uh, in terms of your own uh, pacing yourself, right? You don't need to put in 20 hours uh, a day just because you have this anxiety, like it's gonna take longer. So, you know, just prepare yourself, set yourself up for success, knowing that very likely things take a while. And whenever I, you know, mentor startups or, or, or talk to friends and family about this, I try to always stress this because when I see stress on the other side is often because of that, right? They thought that things would happen in six months or 12 months, and then they don't. And well, what do I do now? I don't have enough runway, you know, even maybe your fi family finances, or maybe the way you explained it to your partner, you know, it's just healthy to set those expectations where typically things just take a while. Everything takes twice as long and costs twice as much, maybe more. Yes. And one that, uh, you know, connected to that, when I started the e-commerce company in 2001 with some friends, one mistake that I made, which I, I don't recommend, is that we were having babies at the same time. And you don't do two startups at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and one is a, a lot more important than the other. Right, right. So, you know, starting a family is a, an incredibly challenging startup. And, uh, you know, there's, with all the ingredients of a business startup, but obviously much more important, you have the uncertainty, you have the financial stress, you have the, you know, the lack of time, the lack of sleep, you know, when you, when you, when you have new children in your family. And so that was a mistake that I made that I don't recommend. If you're starting a company, don't, don't have kids at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so what role have mentors played in your success? You know, I've had a big role, but because of maybe the fact that I work remotely a lot, I've, I've been working on and off remotely for a number of reasons for for 20 years or so. And um, so I've had less of a chance of like that shoulder to shoulder, you know, connection to other people either in your organization or other organizations. Uh, so I've read a lot. I've, uh, I have like virtual mentors more than uh, people that have been working with me for a long time. And so going back to some of the concepts that I was talking about earlier, the, the people that kind of explained the jobs to be done theory and various books and et cetera, like, like Christensen or Bob Moist, et cetera, I considered them mentors because they really taught me, you know, how to approach that idea of understanding what is the problem and what kind of job people are trying to get done. So what are some favorite books that every entrepreneur should read? So there's a, on jobs to be done, there's a lot of great books. One that I maybe recommend is When Coffee and Kale Compete by Alan Clement. So immediately you understand right where he's going. The job to be done is it, it, it's my morning routine and I want to get something to drink. And uh, coffee and a kale-based uh, smoothie might compete. Although you would never think that they do, <laughs> right. but they might for, if, for certain jobs to be done. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a good book to kind of frame uh, that. 
That's great. That's not one that I've read, so I will have to go pick that one up for sure. Sounds good. Well, where can people find out more about you and be online? So I try these days. I try to share quite a bit on LinkedIn. So you can find me on uh, LinkedIn, Massimo uh, Arigoni. There's not a lot of them. <laughs> and, uh, you, can just, uh, you can probably find me there. And then B, absolutely go to bfree.io, B with the two E's, like, a, you know, a B, we, love, we love B's and how they get stuff done and together collaborating. So that's one of the reasons why. That's great. We can, and so bfree.io, go there. That, by the way, stood as best email editor. Oh, and the, okay. that was that was the acronym that we started with uh, when we were kind of thinking about what we're building. So nice. the combination of an acronym and you know and the bees and and how they help the world. Go there, try the product. I'd love to hear your feedback. You know, try to build an email or a page with it and let me know how it went. That's fantastic. And we'll be sure and link all of that in the show notes and a link to the website so you can learn what freemium is all about and go build you some landing pages, emails and really take your marketing to the next level with B. Sounds good. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Massimo. Well, thanks again to Massimo for coming on the show and sharing your insights and resources. To learn more about Massimo and B, check out befree.io. That's B-E-E free.io. And as always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. Well, please subscribe or follow us at sasfuel.com. It's always free. And everyone who subscribes this week will get your choice of four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, or one super special subscriber gets, yep, you know it, a partridge in a pear tree. 12 Days of Christmas actually starts today and goes right through the 25th, 13 plus 12, 25. Well, join us next week for our conversation with Angelo Coletta, founder and CEO of Zakiki, a platform to help brands build engaging customer experiences through customization and personalization using 2D, 3D, and augmented reality. It is absolutely unreal. And you'll love hearing about his journey and the future of customer buying journeys. But the the future is here, and it's not just for consumers, which is kind of what I thought going in. But the enterprise and commercial applications are mind-blowing. So be sure to come back and check it out next week. And until then, enjoy the journey.